What's up, everybody? Welcome back to Keith and Mike Watch Deep Space Nine. We are going to be discussing Deep Space Nine, Season 2, Episode 14, Whispers. I hope everybody had a lovely holiday. If you celebrated, Mike, how you doing, buddy? I am doing good. Yeah, it worked. Um, uh, my Thanksgiving was good, Keith. I hope yours was as well. I, uh, I went out to New York, uh, Long Island, to, uh, to see my wife, and it was pretty good. And then I had to leave early the next day to come back and... Uh, try to learn this show that I'm doing, <laughs> which has been uh, a treat. You know, sometimes you love the gig. Like the enthusiasm, it's sometimes, just written across your face. Sometimes you love the gig, and sometimes you just you just got to do the gig. So I'm in that camp this time. It's uh, but you know what? Cole Porter's a fascinating guy. I'm glad to be getting to know him a little bit. So that's that's great. Anyway. Uh, it was even better because I came back to Keith something another thrift uh, store find. Um, yes, and this bad boy right here. There uh, it is, the Deep Space Nine companion. Mike is now the owner of the encyclopedia of Deep Space Nine, which he's already he's about to be in a walking version of. But now you've got it. That's exciting, Mike. It was really cool. You know, eBay. Everything on eBay, people want it like. Um, Upwards sixty, seventy, eighty dollars for this thing, uh, because it's out of print. And right. I scout. Trust me when I say I scoured the dark web for a PDF copy. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but you found it at a thrift store. A thrift store in San Antonio, um, through this great app where you can kind of like you can they catalog some thrift stores catalog. So it's a Goodwill in San Antonio. So thanks to the good people at Goodwill, the good person went and actually looked to see if they really had it. Um, and Keith, they had two copies. Yes. So uh, I I I struck a bargain, and uh, I got two for much much less than the price they were asking on the eBay. So um, I decided I would be a good pal and eBay yeah. one of them and get some money and keep the other one for myself. How? Wait, what? No, I'm gonna give it. To you. <laughs> That was such an honest reaction. I was like, I was like only half listening, and then like, wait, what? That that went so much better than I had expected. Uh, so yeah, I'll send that out to you um, once I uh, get around to it. So anyway, yeah, how how was your Thanksgiving? Oh, it was lovely. I had my uh, my brother and his girlfriend here, and uh, we had a really lovely time. Excellent. It was yeah, you know, made a turkey and did all the things. So. Played a lot of ping pong, played mm-hmm. a lot of Jackbox. Oh, that's, did, that's uh, the best. What else could you ask for? And played with uh, played with the animals. I was I was uh, dog sitting and cat sitting along here with Charlie. That was uh, very exciting. Charlie turns out is a gangster. Uh, the experiment of do you want another cat? Uh, answers no. No. Good answers to know. no because my sweet fluffy boy is a bit of a jerk. Mm. So. Um, when it comes, but you know he's 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 got a thing going here, and it's a good it's a good deal. He doesn't want to uh, doesn't want to mess with this good thing, so I get it. Keith, what's on your console today? We well, got? I'll tell you what's on my console today. My console, I don't know what's on my console because you do it in post. Yeah, I think it's gonna. My guess, if I had to guess, and hmm. uh, I do do it in post, so I'm always it's it's this time anything could happen. I think it's just a uh, a a Java a, a coffee Jamaican blend. Uh, 
double strong, double, double strong, sweet, double sweet. Maybe that's what it is. That sounds great. I, I and I'm as I'm sitting here realizing I don't have anything to drink. I I, I could I could use one of those. Mm, yeah. We'll see. We'll see if there's an opportunity for me to run up and get myself another Diet Mountain Dew because Lord knows I need more caffeine. But uh, it will give me the energy to thank our patrons who are supporting our show and uh, help keep the lights on. Help pay for the companions that Mike resells on eBay for a profit. Uh, <laughs> uh, but these are these amazing people Mike's going to tell you about. Yeah, of course. Our good, good friends, Brian Kaufman, Casey Clark, Cloud Lover 69 Jason Moe, Andrew Hayes, Jorge Navoa, and the mysterious Worf's Boot Shivs, CRM Productions, Charles Babbage, at Grim Toys and Delusions at Noon Keith. Yes, and I encourage you to join them at patreon.com slash K and M. And, you know, if if you care to, if you can, but at the very least, you can like and subscribe. Uh, We're getting really close to meeting our goal. That would be a really nice Christmas present for us uh, of a thousand subscribers. So uh, I think it is time for us to uh, start talking about this episode, Mm -hmm. which aired... On February 6th, 1994, we were listening once again to the uh, the super trio of Brian Adams, Rod Stewart, and Sting singing All for Love from the Three Musketeers soundtrack. I can't wait to hear some of it. Uh, it's always for love. I don't want one musketeer. And I don't want two musketeers, mm-hmm. baby. Not I enough. need three musketeers the right for my love. Ah. Wow, boy, that's an evening. I hope you hydrate first. <laughs> well, you know, unless, uh, you know, you go in for that menage a love and uh, your one of your partners or both your partners, they 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 they, they won't they won't do it with you, Keith. They 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 say they they've got lots of lots of lots of homework to do or whatever papers to grade. I, I don't know I don't know what's where. The, oh, oh oh all right. You're trying, I was like I'm really trying to make the analogy into real life. There. Oh, it was close. Oh God, it was close. Oh my God. Ooh. I was doing a, I was doing Keiko. Okay. All right. Well, Ooh. yeah, we'll get to that later. I was just imagining you and the Three Musketeers. The uh, in the the quad pole. Mm-hmm. That would be. All right. So, uh, yeah. So our top movie uh, is one of the movies I think has aged worst. Oh. It's probably like, you know, uh, top 10 worst aging movies from the 90s. Oh, that's and bad. That, what is that? Yeah. And that is Ace Ventura Pet Detective. Mm. Which started out a silly Jim Carrey romp and then ended up being a uh, a, a brutally transphobic film that uh, introduced transphobia to a whole generation of people. Yeah, but but to be fair, it also introduced talking through your butt. So if you really weigh those two merits, maybe it kind of evens out. The, the, the social kind of, well, you know, I, I think what that says is it it wasn't all lost. All was not lost. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, it is definitely a film that uh, could use a little trim there because that was pretty. I mean, it, it was. I I clocked it then. I was like, mm. "Huh, that doesn't seem 
But now, Jesus. Which is the one? Was it that one or the second one where he then births himself out of the fake rhinoceros's butt? I believe that's the second one. Yeah. Well, because that was that was a little more arty, you know. Yeah, that that one's that one's good, clean fun. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, sorry, Ace. Sorry, Ace. Uh, Yeah, your movie not didn't didn't end well. Anyway, uh, you want to know what did end well? What was on TV that night, Mike? Nothing. Out of the ordinary, Keith. Uh, you know, you you had your normals. You had your Lois and Clark, The New Adventures of Superman. You had your Murder, yep. She Wrote, Still Rockin', Murder on the 13th Floor. That sounds scandalous. Mm. The only thing that might have been uh, catching your interest was uh, at 8 o'clock that night, Keith, on ESPN, the worldwide mm. leader in sports coverage. They were firing up the NFL Pro Bowl. This just in, it sucked then, too. Uh, but not as much. Back in 1994, they played, and they did and, play. I, and I will give you, I will give you this. Uh, had my football hero Phil Sims not been injured, this would have been his last game he ever played. Oh wow! Because he made the Pro Bowl in his final season, and then was cut to save 2.5 million dollars. Okay. Still mad. I'm still mad. So uh, yeah, the 1994 NFL Pro Bowl. All right, well, uh, enough of that nonsense. Let's get to the hard news. This week, the heaven, not the heaven, just heaven, was photographed by the Hubble telescope. That seems this, like miraculously on point. That's that's pretty that's pretty much what it does, right? I mean, it it finds heaven. Yeah. It's uh it's it, you found where God lives. And if you uh if we can zoom in here a little bit on the uh, on the image, there's like literally like a palace. It's like a space palace in there. So, uh, very exciting news. Your Hubble uh, is still pumping. You know, just because we got the the John Webb out there doesn't mean Hubble's still not doing amazing stuff. Just yesterday, I saw something that was it, it captured two colliding uh, galaxies, and I don't feel like pulling it up. But uh, Google it because uh, Hubble's still rocking and rolling, folks. It's it's really remarkable what they. I mean, you know, the stuff that NASA puts out. I mean, still sending signals back from like the sixties. Really remarkable stuff. Uh, you know, a little sci-fi, a little sci-fi, but it's 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 not the uh, it's cost not a fi- couple bucks more than the two point six million we saved on Phil Sims. So uh, to let Dave Brown, Dave Brown, they wanted to get him out of the way so Dave Brown could take the mantle and make us terrible for the rest of the nineties. God damn it, Dave! I'm not mad. I'm not mad. I'm over it. I need to talk to my therapist. Okay, this episode was directed by Les Landau, who Les last direct Les directed Sanctuary, and was written by Paul Robert Coyle. This is Paul's only Deep Space Nine episode. Uh, he did two episodes of Voyager and a great deal of Hercules and Xena episodes. Uh, if you remember your late nineties. Serialized yeah, love me, love television. Me She's a warrior yeah. princess, Keith. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so uh, now I think it's time for some trivial trivia. What do you say? Hey, sure. I think it's a great idea. Okay. Now, Keith, waste your time with trivial trivia. Okay, let's talk more about Paul Robert Coyle. Yeah, the writer of this episode. Uh, this was a story submitted by him. This is back when Star Trek had an open submission process for the writing. So he, uh, they were like, hey, this is good. Go ahead and write it, which is not only cool that they uh, took the submission, but they let him write it. 
which is uh, pretty cool. But the original idea was to start with O'Brien waking up and nobody remembering him. And, and finding out that, uh, you know, that Keiko and Molly and O'Brien are still on the D. Uh, Enterprise D, that is. Um, so there was certainly a pretty big shift in um, what the mystery is here. Uh, but uh, also would have been a cool episode. Mm-hmm. On, uh, on one of the ships on the arrival roster that he find that O'Brien pulls up, and which you can see in our uh, our AI upgraded version, which struggles with small text, but uh, that's okay. Uh, one of the ships on the arrival roster is the C-587D, captained by J.J. Adams. Uh, that's the ship from Forbidden Planet hmm. in 1955. And this episode ran short uh, because they couldn't cut away to other characters and had to remain on O'Brien. Because if we saw the other characters without O'Brien, it would give it away. They'd all be talking about, hey, what's going on with this guy? Um, and uh, so they they had to make a lot of compromises to make that happen. And this was compounded by they had a scene where O'Brien sang the Minstrel Boy again on the runabout, which is the same song that he sang on the Next Generation episode, The Wounded. Uh, Would have been a really cool callback to that pretty good episode. In fact, patrons out there, you can watch Keith and Mike watch The Wounded together um, as a bonus episode. Uh, An important, uh, it was the first episode where the Cardassians were introduced, and it was a big O'Brien episode. Anyway, so he was going to sing the song again on the uh, on the runabout, but they had to cut it. Not because it wasn't a good scene, not because the performances weren't good, but they made a continuity mistake mm. in the dialogue and didn't notice it until after they had wrapped. So they had to cut the entire scene, which was a problem because the episode was already running short. So uh, some really interesting production issues on this episode. All right, so let's talk about what Next Generation was doing. Um, another very important episode on Next Generation because this episode was Lower Decks, which is a classic episode told from the point of view of lower rank officers, which of course inspired the the series Lower Decks 20-something years later. Uh, almost 30 years later, they write an an entire series around that concept it's a great episode um of next gen it's the type of episode you can do when you're seven seasons in and we're really bought in we're really invested and all of a sudden like we're not even our heroes on the show our peripheral characters um did have ashley judd so that's a win all right so uh the guest stars this week include michael's girlfriend rosalind chow as keiko Todd Waring as DeCurtis, DeCurtis, Susan Bay as Admiral Roman, Philip Lestrange as Kotu, and Hannah Hattay as Molly O'Brien. Molly, you have to stop looking at the camera, sweetheart. Just right uh, at it. I'm two! Well, listen, you want to be in this business? Take no. Your, take, your, take your benzos. My parents and wanted me to be in this business. Take your benzos and shut up and stop looking at the camera. <laughs> Oh my God! <laughs> Mike apparently wants to Judy Garland, the three-year-old girl in this episode. You're making showbiz, kids, kid, kid. Okay, that's my bit. That's my agent bit. <laughs> what a great bit! 
<laughs> Nailed it. Why did case you do another the, spit it's take? A case of the Mondays. <laughs> oh my god. Wow. Okay. So stay away from that guy, Judy Garland. You know, I once did a reading of a of a play, like a table read of a play written an autobiographical play about Judy Garland's last husband. Yeah. Uh and uh it was really weird. He was a odd guy. Wow, guys. Uh, moral of Keith's story, uh Judy Garland's life sucked. Yeah, it wasn't good. Okay, here we are. Hey, Keith, Season... wait, well, just, just a second there. What, what's that? Sounds like I'm not the only one singing. Yep, boop, 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 boop. Yep, great. Well, That's, I, welcome I to the soundboard. What was that even from? Uh, you were talking about uh, Some Like It Hot, the musical. Ah, okay. Well, that, Who did yes, an, that an selections from the... Incredible performance on the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. So if you were, uh, if, you're, if your beak was oh, wet by Keith's... Uh, Review on last week's KM Geekly. Uh, we're yeah. skipping this week. We're taking this week off, so don't be shocked that you didn't see it this week. And uh, the 12 of you who watch it, and check out the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade performance by the cast of Some Like It Hot. I mean, I don't know. I did a pretty flawless rendition of the score. Uh, yeah, boop, so boop, boop, boop. I don't think you necessarily need to see the show now because you really have the full experience. This just but, in, uh, Mike reviewed Keith's review. That wasn't good. <laughs> mm, mm, mm. That was bad. All yeah, right. well, there there it is. Okay, we have a soundboard. Hooray for us. All right, so in the <laughs> teaser of Deep Space Nine Whispers, O'Brien heads to the wormhole in a runabout towards the Paratus system. He looks worried. He starts a personal log. He needs to set the record straight. We don't usually hear last... personal logs, right? Uh, we do sometimes, but usually more on on uh, next gen than on Deep Space Nine. The other thing we learned in this episode is that like you have access to everybody's logs too, if certain people do anyway. Well, not their personal logs, the station logs. Gotcha. Which which are different, but either way, Starfleet is really into diarying. But the way they do this one, it does give it a very noir vibe right from the top, which is cool. oh yeah. yeah. No, the the whole episode's a noir. Um. And shot like that, performed like that. It's really cool. Uh, O'Brien figures there will be people coming after him, but he doesn't know who or why. He then flashes back, and we're going to tell this entire episode through flashbacks. He flashes back to the first time he noticed something was wrong. It was the morning he got back to the station from a business trip. When he wakes up, Keiko and Molly are already up and eating breakfast. They're both acting weird and somewhat standoffish for no reason. Keiko asks what he was up to in the Parada system. He said he was there to review security procedures for peace talks. Then Keiko takes Molly to school with her at 5.30 in the morning. And she's not doing a really good job hiding the fact that she's freaked out. Can we just, just quickly? Yeah. Because I didn't clock it somehow until very late in the episode. And actually, I have to do a juxtaposition against other O'Brien. No spoiler alert. Um, what is with these sideburns? 
Oh, I I clocked that too. They were very pronounced this episode. It was like very. That's like not. <laughs> it's very like. What's the future going to be like? Well, maybe we'll have like really sharp angle sideburns with like a straight. Because like you know, his hair doesn't have that straight of a cut across. Oh yeah, yeah. No, the the Star Trek sideburns are. It's it's a part of Trek. It has been a part of Trek since forever. Oof. That's that is the fashion in the future. Is uh, is triangle really so, tight so that is, triangle sideburn. That is that's not just because it's a you know a, a stand in. No. Okay. No, no, no. Those those are I, I, they were really really pronounced this episode. I think because Les Lando did a lot of close ups mm-hmm. and a lot of close ups from low angle, and and I I think just sort of shot it in a way that was very very obvious. But if you keep watching and look at other episodes, you're going to see those on almost okay. all of the men on the show. I would go as far as to say, since you brought it up, this is probably my favorite shot episode that we've seen thus far. I think mm. the 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 choice of angles, some of the establishing shots, almost all of the wipe transitions are really well done and thought out and clever. I just think it's like an incredibly shot episode, which heightens the tension. Yeah, Les Lando did a really good job on this episode. Like, there's just there's just no getting around it. Uh, but meanwhile, yeah, so, and so this is where I, I'm going to ask you like a hundred times today what you thought at this point in this episode, because I haven't not known the secret mm-hmm. for like 20 years. Uh, so I'm curious. Well, I mean, what were you th- they're clearly laying it on a little thick at the top. Something's up. I mean, I'm vent- it's too early for me to have ventured a guess, but you know, the initial thing is I can tell you my first, I'll try to, I'll try to remember where I clocked it. My first thought was <laughs> this is, and it's really stupid, Keith. So I will share it because our, I'm, I will share when I'm stupid. Mm-hmm. I was like, Oh, maybe they implanted him with some sort of a, like what, what, what's the race of people that, he had just came back from their planet. The Paradins. Some sort of Paradin spy. That's what I thought. Like he was like and put up with some sort of spy gear. And the reason people are being weird around him is because somewhere in the lore they mention, oh, Cisco asks him coming up. Uh in fact, I'll wait. I'll wait, I'll wait. But so I haven't clocked anything. I hadn't made a I haven't made a guess yet. Okay. I remember fair where I made my first guess. So later, O'Brien discovers a Starfleet engineer already at work in Odo's office, recalibrating the security net. He's pissed because uh, a dude started before Odo got back from Bajor, and Bajor, and Odo was going to have an opinion. And it turns out, hey, Cisco told him to. Eh, this doesn't make O'Brien happy at all. He goes to Cisco to say, what gives? And discovers Keiko and Cisco having an intense discussion on the promenade. And that is the end of our teaser. Uh, we don't know much about anything other than everything feels a little bit off. Mm-hmm. That's yeah, all I mean, we especially know. Especially with Cisco banging, uh, you know, Keiko. Okay. Now, I know you are you could not be hornier for Keiko uh, if it were like a medical condition. But I did not take from that banging. No, me neither. I just, but <laughs> I mean, yeah, uh, he doesn't know what to think right now. No, 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 but I, I didn't immediately go to banging. No, me neither, Keith. <laughs> totally not me either. No, you would never. Well, you, so could, you I... could tell in real time if you want. You could just uh, subscribe, patreon.com slash K&M, and you can watch me watch Deep Space Nine, Keith. We've got to That's that. true. You're darn right. 
So we uh, enact one. We head back to the present. O'Brien continues rushing to the Parada system, and he scans for people chasing him. And there is one, and it's the other runabout from Deep Space Nine. He decides to continue the story. O'Brien is accosted by Bashir, who tells him it's time for his physical. O'Brien doesn't want to, but Cisco orders him to. But before he goes, he talks to Cisco, and Cisco apologizes for going around him with the engineering guy, and they uh, discuss the Paradin security and just how paranoid they are. Yeah, and and Cisco is really he always does, but especially here, he really is just takes delight in the back and forth. And this is one of those moments where you're like, "What does he know? What does he know that I don't know?" Because he clearly has. His his face belies his attempt at just being cash. It's just being cash, but he is really good at the delaying tactics. Mm-hmm. And sometimes, like, apologizing and owning up to stuff is a great delaying tactic. Because he was like, oh, yeah, no, you're totally right. I shouldn't have done that. You know, my bad. Even though he was very much intentional. It's just a good way to delay. Uh so we, we get from this that the Paradins have been going through a civil war for the last 12 years. So that's what the, uh, the peace talk's coming up. That's what this whole thing is about. Cisco asks him to tell, tell me more details about the Paradins. And O'Brien says, you know what? They stink. They stink. So this was when Mike had his first big swing, Keith. He was like, oh... He's one of these, he's a spy. Somehow they like implanted there's some sort of spy they didn't know. And the reason everybody around him is being weird is because he stinks to high heaven and doesn't know it. Because he's infected Ooh. with Paradin. Oh, I like that. That's what I thought. I like that. I mean, that's why that's why Molly made a face and Keiko was like, yeah, I don't want to do the do the dirty because you smell dirty. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, it's it, it's certainly interesting and in that, that they, uh, they have a smell that is affected by their moods. Mm-hmm. Um, as, you know, it is for everybody. Um, but it's it's interesting that that's never followed up on, right? They sort of yeah. drop this little nugget here, and we never go forward with it. But I understand why, mm-hmm. and and uh, it's it's a good little nugget. It's, it's a it's a cool little trait that makes sense biologically that it would work that way. I think it's called Occam's However, odor. Occam's odor, something mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but the uh, but it's not visual. Mm-hmm. So it's not really something you could do an episode about because we can't see it. Yeah. And you just have people talking about what it smelled like. So um, they really couldn't dig any further into it on television. Or, you know, they could. It just wouldn't make a lot of sense. We also don't even see them until the very, very, very end. Right. Right. Um, It's a bummer because they're they're cool looking. Anyway, uh, Cisco then waves him off more security work and tells him, go fix the upper pylons which are broken again despite O'Brien just having fixed them, but only after his physical. I think it is possible, looking back now, that, you know, Avery here is is putting into Ben a bit of, I mean, you know, if, if somebody, had, if I knew, if I had the advanced knowledge, Keith, that you were, a, for, for all intents and purposes, a clone of Keith, but didn't know mm-hmm. it, it would be interesting to sort of poke at you a little bit and find out what do you know? Like, what do you remember? What are you like? And it, it does seem like it, it, Ben is playing with his food a little bit here. Well, a little bit, but he's he's really been, he's he's really only digging at the Paradins. 
Like all mm. all the questions are all about the Paradins and like what do you you know what what else can you tell me about them? What's going on? Because I don't think at this point they're sure what he is. Or even if he is Well, that's line. one of the time that's kind of one of the wormholes here is is we don't have a good because and I think it's for the best that because we're on we're being told the POV of uh I guess he would be the second. So O'Brien Beta, right? Uh-huh. That we don't really know the time frame of how how information about the plot and such is being fed to our protagonists. So right. we don't really know. I mean I guess we sort of have a date, a star date, about wh- when the communications, when his security is locked out, right? So, but we're un- it's not really clear when they get word what he is and what he potentially might be up to. That I mean, but I well, guess that happens later. No, and well, and and he finds the communications that he can't get access to. I think they are getting communications ongoing through it. Like, uh oh, something is up. We don't know what. Oh, we think we might he might have been replaced. Blah 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 blah. So. The, which is why people's suspicion of him and the security things locking him down become they, they escalate. Mm-hmm. You know, they they get they get more and more as they get more and more certain at what his deal is. Yeah, I think I'm going to try to like save some of this conversation for the end because I think what might be fun to do that I'm kind of dying to do is to then once we get through the the summary here is to to kind of track back and I because we get all of this from the POV from. O'Brien Beta, I kind of want to think through the logic of the of the crew and staff, mm, and totally. in chron- chronologically, and it, because I think maybe it doesn't make a ton of sense. We'll see. We'll have to go through it. Okay, interesting. Well, before O'Brien goes to, uh, he asks before he goes, he asks why Cisco and Keiko were talking on the promenade. Uh, you know. So uh, Cisco says, oh, it's, it's just because Jake is having trouble with his grades. So he goes to the infirmary. They weren't banging, Mike. They go to the infirmary, and Bashir has been examining O'Brien for forever, and O'Brien is getting pissed. They banter, and Bashir forgets that O'Brien's mother is dead. Mm-hmm. Um, talk about, like, finding out the information that Beta knows mm-hmm. um, while also realizing, oh, Bashir, what a dick. Also, this is the exact screenshot of when he grabs his balls. Uh-huh. Yep, yep. Because in the future, Keith, even though we can we can fix you with a laser beam, we have to manually mm-hmm. touch your nuts to know that you, your prostate's okay. Oh, well, you know, that, that, that's the fun part. You don't want to miss out. So uh, O'Brien is fed up, but then he thinks, maybe I'm dying, and that's why everyone is acting so strange. Which, you know, for me, when I first watched it, like, oh, right, of course that makes sense. Mm-hmm. But then immediately, Bashir gives him a clean bill of health. Uh, also, as he gets up, the Bajoran hospital jo- Johnnies are absolutely insane. Everything they, they ha- put O'Brien in, every costume they give him, I feel so bad. I was like, man, just make the man look good. Fit him in something, but no. He Well, he's our everyman. Like, you know, like, look, there's, there's nothing you can put me in that's going to make me look like Bashir, right? So, uh... But here's the thing about the about the hospital gown that he's in, right? There's a million ties on the back, hand-tied ties. So the patient can't dress or undress undress themselves uh, without help. It's all just hand ties, like 90 of them down the back. Uh, and if there was an emergency, it'd take like 10 minutes to remove, Listen. which def- 
Bashir, the wa- he, Bashir wants, like, just like the manual ball grab, he wants manual access to everything going on in that medical suite. Yeah, but he's going to have, like, to, you know, untie him like it's a corset. He basically okay. puts him in a hospital corset. Hey, he hates when you leave, Keith, but he likes watching you walk away. All right, here we go. Fair enough. So on the promenade, uh, Jake runs into O'Brien and asks for help with his homework. O'Brien thinks it's uh, because his grades are bad, but Jake's like, nah, nah, man. nah they're good. Uh, which is an interesting out for the act, mm-hmm. right? Um, to like go to commercial off like, oh, my, my, my grades are okay. But within the context of the episode, like it actually makes sense yeah. uh, that they didn't end an act there. But out of context, like, boy, that's not an exciting reason to come back. It totally does make sense, <clears throat> especially that, and it's clear, and it's interesting for Ben too, because it's clear Ben was improvising in that moment, and then not not well. Yeah, well, and also, you know, Jake is the last person to know what's going on, so he doesn't know to lie, and he's the only one acting normally, mm-hmm. and that's I think it's just interesting to have Jake there as the normal acting person. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's a nice little wrinkle that wasn't really necessary but I think really helped. Um, So in Act 2, O'Brien works on the upper pylons and realizes this is going to keep him from working on the security. Uh, But he goes to check check in on Donny Osmond and gets stonewalled. Only Kira can access the Parada's quarters. And Sisko and Kira call in and block him and send him back to the upper pylons. And the minute he does, we see, of course, that Donnie was lying. I mean, Donnie, Espionage 101. You got to wait at least 12 seconds for the person to actually leave. You know he's hiding around that corner. Come on. I mean, especially if you think O'Brien's a spy. Like, or even if you suspect that O'Brien's a spy. That's it's not not really good, but you know, and especially for an episode that ran short, right? Yeah. All I could keep thinking though was like, man, that guy he like hit the Star Trek jackpot. You know, sometimes they just throw you in like a big like trash can head, and you get seen and blurry in the back. But this guy's got lines, close ups, two scenes, three scenes. Yeah. No, that's a good residual baby. So uh, on the promenade. Speaking of, this guy didn't get a line. He's just, they gave him some trash gloves, a, a, a Wookiee or an Ewok suit and said, hey, give him some Halloween paint, make, call it a day. Oh, Mike, but do you know what species that is? No, he looks like a dude from the first scene of Beetlejuice where they're kind of in the waiting room. That's what he looks mm-hmm. like. That is a Packlid, which uh, is a, a running joke on Lower Decks and uh, the stars of a, Pretty hilarious episode of The Next Generation. Uh, make us go. Uh, so that was a like running joke in my family. We would Keith, do that, do that again. Say it again. Make yep, us go. Oh, you did a harmony. Okay. Mm, yeah, that's that's great. Uh, anyway, maybe we should maybe we should do the Packlet episode as a bonus sometime. All right. Because it's so silly. Um, and it's it's really fun to see oh, them. Someone's keeping a list of all this bonus stuff we keep talking about because we uh, we are behind. We are well, we're behind. Yeah, we got to do something. It's special. been busy. It's been busy. Uh, anyway, so uh, then uh, Jake goes up to O'Brien and asks him about his little device. O'Brien asks Jake if anything unusual happened while he was gone. It's a smoke bomb. That's what he does. He say that's what it is. 
Uh, no. Uh, O'Brien uh, adapts it's just, it. That's what it turns something. out to be. Yeah, he, it's like an Assassin's Creed smoke bomb, but poof. It's a. Uh, it's, it's Vegas. He's, yeah. He's doing a little magic act. <laughs> <laughs> He's been, and for my next trick, I shall make this Statue of Liberty disappear in 1996. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, so as they're chatting, all of a sudden, Kira calls Jake away. Says, uh, no, don't, don't talk to the guy. Don't talk to the replicant. It's not good. So we head back to the pylon, and O'Brien discovers that they were broken deliberately. More suspiciousness. He goes back to his quarters and discovers Keiko setting up dinner. And she tells him, oh, you know what? Jake canceled their homework date. He also discovers that Molly is spending the night at somebody else's house. This immediately turns O'Brien, instead of trying to wonder what's going on in the world, why is everyone acting strange, have I been replaced, blah, 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 the world is ending, no! He turns immediately into Mike and wants to use the opportunity to go to Pound Town with Keiko. It, it is the most natural thing in the whole episode, right? <laughs> because it's such a dude thing. It's like, oh my God, I think these people, because three seconds from now, he thinks she's trying to poison him. But, right. oh, the kid's away? Well, before we get to the plot, it's yeah, a, yeah, not only, it's not about- Keith, let's just put it this way. It's not just the plot that's thickening. You know what I'm saying? Wow. That wasn't good. <laughs> Before she assassinates him, he wants to get into that. Yeah. Okay. Uh my goodness. Nothing turns you on more than nasty stew, which is what we're gonna about to get mm. to. Uh Keith. She, this uh, is, <laughs> but before this is what I was this what I, she's <laughs> not freaked out and shuts him down. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's uh, not a good that, sign. If that's the look that you get at the end of the, the first date, that is not the face you want to see <laughs> on your amorous partner. Yeah. That is that's not the, if if that's the face you see, you're done. That's it. <laughs> Shut it down. So how'd it go? Well, uh, she sort of looked like this. She made she made that face, and that means it's time to go home. Time to go home. Oh, I'm gonna have but, a little uh, blue drink. I love a blue. Instead, drink. she made him some stew to go with the giant bowls of candy and blue raspberry Kool Aid. And she made him his favorite uh, to eat. Stew. Uh, look, you know, stew never looks good, but stew's delicious. Uh, but she's not going to eat it. And that makes him suspicious. Is it poisoned? I loved the long shot at the end of the scene where it's, I know you know, you know I know, we both know. But at this point in the episode, even I have to say, Keith, I did question the pacing slightly. I was like, are, it's it was it, we're like halfway. Are you going to give me anything, anything, anything? No, we just want to sit in this intrigue. No. Yeah, yeah. The answer is no. The answer is no. Uh, so he doesn't need it. It's tense, and then he says, "This is not my Keiko." Uh, so uh, yeah, it's tough. It, it you know I those like little scenes where. They're staring at you to eat something and you can't eat it. Like, I don't know. Like, it's been done a million times and everything, but it's always tense. I, I always like those kind of scenes. Because uh, it's like social interaction. Yeah. Tense. I don't know. It's weird. Most uh, top of your head, like most tense scene in TV or movies you can think of. Oh, God. I'll never remember. Not in a million years. No. I got, I got nothing in the top of my head. First, I'm just ho- I'm trying to hold on to my hair on the top of my head. First 5 minutes of Inglorious Bastards. Oh, yeah. That scene is just like 
I can't even handle it. I don't know that I could ever watch it again. I watched it that one time in the movie theater, and I was like, I can't ever sit through this again. It's just too tense. Such a great scene. It is it is not a scene in any way relevant to the type of thing that we're talking about, but some of the most tense scenes um, I can remember are the are the uh, just the caving scenes in... The, in um, Oh God, what is the name of that movie? But this is such a good show. Patreon.com slash K and M. <laughs> All right. So O'Brien goes back to his quarters and he wants to listen to some podcasts. Yes, yes. He reviews his log to see if his last line reading was dramatic enough, then continues. This is not my Keiko. Back that night, he starts researching what's going on, checking all sorts of things, but nada. He asks the computer to display all arriving vessels. Still nothing. He replicates some coffee that they very cleverly put out of camera view. <laughs> so they didn't have to do an effect. They were like, yeah, didn't not have this to time. do the VFX. Yep. I mentioned uh, that too. Good shot. Smart work. Saves, saves some dough there. Uh, whole episode saved a lot of money because they did it. They shot it really fast. And so they were, they were ahead of time. Um, they just <laughs> didn't do enough time. Uh, but, uh, it's back-to-back episode. This is more. This is more. In my head, I'm like, this is back-to-back episodes about Keiko and O'Brien drinking coffee and being caught up in alien warring warring factions. Yeah. Uh, like I like both episodes. It would have been good to like put a couple episodes in between. Yeah, them. Probably. Um, but you know that, that's what happened. So uh, he asks the computer to listen to all the station logs while he was gone. He listens to them all night long. Then uh, he finds that the station logs after he got back are now all blocked. And he has been locked out despite the fact that he has the security codes. And so this is where I think the escalating reaction, mm-hmm. you know, they know a little bit more. So now they're thinking to lock him out of this. I, I don't think had he done this right when he first got back, this would have happened. I think this is where there could have been I, I think the I think it's coming up. I I'm gonna save my comment. All right. Mike defers. So uh he heads back to ops and wanders around for a while because they needed to pad the episode's running time. He starts to work and like, Donnie look at all this Osmond, cool shit we got. I know. I mean, I actually appreciated mm-hmm. it because I love just looking around that set. Mm-hmm. There's so I, much cool I also stuff. Also re mentioned too, like as an actor, what I think the Deep Space Nine, we've talked about this before, the Deep Space Nine got cast got so blessed with is there is nothing worse than not having props. I'm speaking yeah. from direct experience right now. Like there's <laughs> it, there's something in the business called called business. And what that basically means is you never just stand there and talk to somebody. You're always fiddling with something or there's something or you're doing you're running it you're doing a task or you've got you're writing something or you're looking at this. But you can't do any of those things that feel natural and fill time and space and look good if you don't have stuff around to do it with. Uh and in many cases miming things like is worse than doing nothing at all. Yeah. So this cast you know, and, and, and that's tough, especially now with a lot of things being shot on green screen. Yeah. There's not a lot of stuff because you're saving money that way. But here, they had so much actual physical business to do and to work with. You never had to really fake it. You could just, he could go and use his little doodad and scan the doodads. 
in you know, and uh, it gets pretty meta because as you make that comment, uh, you're working in front of a green screen. Yes. We're not actually in a theater. No, it turns it's out actually, mm-hmm. we're not actually there. We're yeah. actually both uh, in, in front of green screens. Mm. 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 So meta. It's all there. So uh, he starts to work, and Donnie Osmond shows up to check out check on him. Um, basically, uh, I think this scene was probably a little filler scene. So this is why Donnie Osmond got to come back for a second scene. Third scene. This is third scene. Third scene. I mean, maybe he got called back in. Uh, that's always great yeah, news. Pumped. Another day he's on like, set. Yeah. Hell yeah. Uh, he discovers that several traps have been put into the code to alert people if he broke the encryption. But he's like, eh, too smart no worries. That. I clear it easily and sneaks back to his quarters. Everyone is checking and rechecking what he has done and what he is doing. There were also, he found, secret messages from the Paradins. And this is the new information that I think they're getting. Odo then waits at the airlock. I mean, O'Brien waits at the airlock for Odo to arrive. He corners him and explains that he thinks there's something going up going on with everybody except for Jake. Odo has a better poker face than anybody else on the station, tells him to lay low, and he'll do some investigations. Well, it's possible. Well, you think that they've briefed Odo already. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's no way you wouldn't let Odo know immediately. I actually think this scene is potentially, for me, one of the most important scenes of the whole show. Mm. Because I think we're getting to the point where I'm, even no, even if I knew all the information, but I'm just thinking from his viewpoint, from the POV of O'Brien, because they both think they're O'Brien, so that counts. It doesn't make any sense to me that he wouldn't at this point have confronted some with someone with like WTF is going on. Like I'm not stupid. I found the encrypted thing. Blah blah blah. Like he he would he mm. would have confronted someone, but. Here is where he expresses that he thinks a, there is a nefarious plot going on and that he is the one who has to bring it to light and to save everybody or to to be the hero, which they, they, they reference later. And I think that's such an interesting tidbit for O'Brien because by now he could have run or he would have confronted because he's a blowhard. He, he's the first to be like, what the fuck's going on? But I think here's where we find out that he's been saving it because he trusts that if they've been infected with something or whatnot, that Odo, who's been off off the station and also is a different kind of type of being, would be safe. And so he's he's kind of so I, it 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 retcons a lot of kind of wormholey stuff for me because now I'm like mm. the pacing is off because like he would have by now he would have blown up. Um, I think I, I sort of love this this beat here. Well, I, I think he I think the word is conspiracy. Mm, yeah, I, yeah. I think once once he realized that everybody is off. It's not like, oh, Bob is acting really weird. Let me go talk to the boss. Mm-hmm. If everybody is off and you don't know who you can talk to because you think everybody is is out, like it, it totally makes sense. And if there's a conspiracy going on, and you know, he is very concerned about the security of the peace talks, mm-hmm. right? So, as as O'Brien in his mind, he's like. There's something going on. It's probably related to the peace talks. I need to save the situation. Yeah. Um, no, it it all makes sense. And of course, you go straight to the person who hasn't been on the station. Um, and, uh, and Odo's real smart, you know. And again, everybody's tactics that O'Brien talks to 
are delay, mm-hmm. right? It's not denial. It's delay. You know, uh, uh, Cisco was like, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm so sorry. You know, my bad. No, there's nothing going on. It was totally my fault. You know, go about your business. I'm going to, you know, go get a physical, go do the pylons. And 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 Odo's just like, lay low. I'm going to investigate and get back to you. Just chill. I think you're... I think you're solving my biggest wormhole, actually. Because mm. my biggest thing was the timetable. Uh, I guess we'll talk about it now real quick. Because my, 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 my feeling was, why, if, if they know he's, if they, if they suspect that he is something other, right? Mm-hmm. Why not just trap him? Why not just capture him? Why not just blast him? Why, why are we waiting? And I guess... You know, at first I thought, well, maybe because they don't want to trigger whatever it is, right? If it is that he's like a Manchurian candidate and he could be a big right. blood, like they don't want to piss him off or do whatever to trigger it. But if they feel in any way, shape, or form that he is dangerous, then that blows up that first scene because it's clear in that first scene that both Keiko and Molly know something's up. Yeah. So why would anybody risk their safety by putting him in the same room with him? If there was any suspicion he was dangerous, which kind of removes that. But if you're telling me that they didn't know at that point, or they're like, we have to wait it out, maybe that's why why, why Keiko's pissed in that first scene with 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 Ben. She's like, fuck this. We're not, but don't put us in the same room with him if he's could be dangerous. So that's yeah. my my biggest wormhole is like, why is is the kids' safety risked at mm. all? Or if they're, you know, like, why wouldn't they have just sequestered him right away if there was anything? No, and I I think that's fair. I mean, I, I I think that is I think that's a very fair wormhole. I think um, were I to try to fix it, I think it would be the the creep of information. Mm-hmm. You know, we go from like, huh, something's weird to something a little suspicious to, oh, there's something serious going, but we don't know what it is. You know, yeah, and, like maybe and, they had to vet the information because clearly they're getting the info that he's not what he seems from rebels, right? Rebels. Right. So maybe in the beginning they don't know that maybe they think it's him, but there's something off. Like I guess you're right. In that case, they Yeah, and we don't we don't know I don't think they they don't I don't think they know it's not him until much later in the episode. I would say because even when he comes because they even remove Jake. They're like they don't let Jake go to the homework assignment, which is coming up right yeah. here, right now. So clearly, Keiko at this point has been told we have we're we're, we're not putting Jake in that situation. Get Molly out of there. Well, but I I, th- I think their other their their other intent, and, and I think this is probably what it really is. Right, they're trying to get information from him. Mm. Right, they he somehow knows what the plot is. Right. And if they were to arrest him, I think the idea is they wouldn't be able to get the information out of him of what yeah, that's the interesting. assassination plot but, is. But it's nothing more than a MacGuffin. That's the problem, I think, with the episode ultimately, is that the the plot is a MacGuffin because we don't ever they just explain it away. They're like, Oh, there's some trigger in him who we'll never know. <laughs> that's Well, he's a I mean, he's a Manchurian candidate, right? I mean it's it's like he's it doesn't really matter what I know. exactly the, I know. the trigger is, but yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I, I don't. It doesn't bother me. Okay. Anyway, we'll we'll get back to it. Mm-hmm. We will circle back. Right, for here's sure. where he's making his David Copperfield. He's doing his thingy. Yes. So, uh, 
So he thinks he finally has an ally, but he begins working on a gizmo to use in an emergency. Then we go to the bar, and Quark jokes about his upcoming racquetball rematch with Bashir. Good callback. We're never going to see it because that was too much of a pain in the ass to build. Uh, then uh, even Quark asks for more info about the Paradins. Um, So the, the conspiracy of trying to figure out Do you more think they asked Quark to get info? I didn't read that. It read like he was just... I guess I could see I mean, it. I, th- I think he has deniability. He definitely has I the best poker feel... face of everybody, for sure. Oh, of course. Because yeah. like, he would be doing this either way. But I almost wonder if Odo goes to him and says, like, something's going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you get a chance, sniff around. ask him, sniff around and try to get more information about the Bronze. And, you know, because Quark is, Quark is a team player when it benefits him. Uh, then uh, Odo calls and summons Bashir uh, 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 Keith, would you agree the AI upscale, the AI upscale benefits Quark the most? It certainly helps with, yeah. Yeah, I mean, every one of those ridges is so beautifully done and hand-painted. And, you know, because sometimes the AI upscale does not help the makeup mm-hmm. or the alien effects because, uh, you know, they're a little slapdash. Sometimes they don't have the budget. But with with Quark, I mean, they've invested a great deal into that makeup, and it looks great. Uh, so, uh, yes, uh, Odo then asks him in the office for still more information about the Paradins. So they are really prodding him for information. Uh, and he says that the secure transmissions that he saw were from Paradin Rebels. O'Brien says this is enough to cancel the peace talks. This makes sense. But when Odo says, nah, he knows that Odo is in on it too. Uh, Then Sisko and Kira arrive abruptly with phasers, saying they just want to talk. O'Brien drops his gizmo, and uh, it creates a little force field light show, and he grabs a phaser and shoots his way out of the office and runs. Oh, good job with the screenshots. Thanks, buddy. Look at all those, all all the pew pews there, all of that digital. But it, they know, once again, great direction in this episode. They know exactly what works. It wasn't too much, it wasn't too little. A couple pews, and then, and then yep. duck out of there. That's all you need. You don't need so much manual fighting. Enough with the elbows and axe handles. <laughs> I know. Star Trek hand-to-hand is just bad. Uh-huh. So, I love this uh, force, field, force field bit. So great. I yeah. love a little like techno engineering uh, puzzle solving. Well, I, awesome. I, O'Brien's problem solving is O'Brien's problem solving. Like mm-hmm. it actually is tied to the character. Like the him being an engineer here really works. And, and everything he does is tied to that, which is just good writing. It's just good tight writing. Uh, so he's now on the run now. And O'Brien tries to emergency transport, but he's locked out. He discards his comm badge, briefly revealing the Velcro or whatever they use to attach the communicators to his shirt. Uh, It's gone in the next shot, uh, but we do see it for a second. And he runs until he's trapped by force fields. But as you said, O'Brien is too smart. He sets up a ton of force fields to surround him, so they are forced to drop them all to get to him. Then he uh, accidentally runs into Jake and tries to warn him. But then Jake rats him out to security. Oh, betrayal. O'Brien then climbs into a Jeffries tube to hide. 
He climbs up for a very long time, then drops his phaser. Uh, it seems super dangerous to have a hundred feet of ladder straight down the tube. Um, but then it's a, you know, it, it, I, I would say that it's a, it's a Cardassian station, so they don't give a shit about danger. And yet we see it on the Federation ships too. Um, this is just a, an ingenious, this is what I talked about. This isn't the ingenious bit of directing here because they do this whole sequence of him climbing through the tubes and up the ladders and down the ladders. But reality it's one little locale, and it's just different angles yep. shot in different ways, up, down, and him coming through this little thing, and it looks like a whole travel sequence, Yeah, but it isn't. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's just like one little locale, and they just yeah. sw- swap it around. It's just a great bit of, uh, sleight of sleight of hand. We're doing a lot of uh, Copperfield references today to uh, to make this shot look like a travel, sequ- travel sequence. Really great. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and the, and the corridors, too. I mean- mm-hmm. You know, they, they don't have an, an unlimited amount of corridors. It's not even a full circle. It's queue uh, around and around. Very cool. Uh, and of course, so, he would know where there's like a hidden transporter to like override. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he keeps going until he arrives in a cargo bay with a transporter. Also, are those beams- like uh, smuggled organs in like ice chests? Because it definitely, <laughs> what are those things? This is probably Quark's area. Yeah, okay. Those are Quark's buckets. Hey, you want a deep callback, Keith? Maybe there's some grape jelly in there. Oh, oh no one's ever going to yep. get that one bit. That's um, and that's the way it should be when it comes to the grape jelly. Shouldn't yeah, understand indeed. it. It should, should never make any sense. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, so he beams onto the runabout and launches. Cisco calls and says to shut down your engines, but O'Brien's like, I've already unlocked the ship. And I've shut down the tractor beams. I'm all over this. But at this point, don't they? Shouldn't they know? Especially the way he approached another wormhole for me. When the mm. way he approached Odo, it's definitely seeming as though you could read that he does. He's unaware a and b trying to help. So what if they just told him here, like, "Hey, we think you might be compromised. Turn yourself in. We're gonna figure well, it out." Yeah, I mean, certainly that that would be a way to do that. Roll credits. But but I, I think that's what they were planning to do mm. when they showed up in Odo's office with Faze. We want to talk. I bet they were going to be like, all right, here's the deal. Uh, and that he didn't give him an opportunity to because he was on the run the whole time. I'm going up the chain, Keith. Going up the chain. Yes. Uh, so uh, they shoot at him with phasers, but O'Brien's too good. He heads for the wormhole. And on the way, he calls Starfleet and gets to an admiral immediately. Should have been suspicious. Uh, he tells her about some sort of conspiracy on Deep Space Nine, and she tells him to turn around and go back to D- DS9. Is all of Starfleet compromised? Ah, now it's getting big. He goes through the wormhole, and uh, the short episode and no, no dialogue here allows time for some fantastic music. Uh, I thought the score in this episode mm-hmm. was really great. Um, you know, and, and, uh, you know, the, the, the traveling and the zooming through the wormhole and the music of it all, I think adds to the, um, sense of scale. It, it felt more epic because mm-hmm. we spent a little bit more time, uh, doing that. I kept waiting. So, I kept waiting right here. I'm thinking it's gotta be something with the coffee. Cause this is the fourth time in the episode. He mm. mentions how he replicates coffee. It's very specific, the instructions, but, and I was like, maybe it's. It, what would have been great, like, is like to show a. Fl- uh, I'm retconning the episode is to show a flaw in the, the replicant 
technology they have and have him, we realize by the end that like he ordered the coffee wrong. Like he only does uh, double strong, single sweet or something like that in a previous episode. And here we realize mm. that there's one, something's off. That would have been kind of cool. But I guess that they, or even if like, since we're back to back the episodes, maybe at the, in the tag of last week's episode with Keiko, if she had mentioned the type of coffee he drinks, then he's doing it wrong here. That could have been something cool, but no such Well, luck. yeah, although I think the whole episode hinges on us believing he's right and the, everyone yes, else correct. Is, yeah. is messed up. Um, but, uh, so in Act 5, the timelines are merged. O'Brien is 90 seconds from the Parada system. He concocts a plan to drop out of warp and hide in the moons. The pursuing runabout matches course, and he knows the moon's atmosphere will mess with their sensors for a second and zooms out while they are blind. Again, more good strategy. The runabout set looks amazing. That mm-hmm. shot looks great. Yeah, it all um, looks great. The, uh, the other runabout, runabout, Instead of uh, runabouts, transform and roll out. A runabout. It runabouts off to Parada 2 and 3 beam down. So Brian's like, I got to figure out what's going on with this. And he follows and also beams down into some gray caves. And inside the caves is a door. And behind that door is Cisco, Kira, and two Paradins. Cisco says, you don't understand but he makes them drop their weapons. They say, just just look behind this door. It's going to explain everything. Then they shoot O'Brien, and they we see finally behind the door is Bashir and another O'Brien. Turns out the O'Brien we've been following was a Blade Runner replicant programmed to assassinate the delegation at the peace talks. The replicant didn't know he was a replicant, and acted exactly as O'Brien would have. And the replicant says, tell Keiko I love her, and dies. And that is the end of the episode. Uh, Just a last note, the score for this episode is fantastic. Mm -hmm. Dennis McCarthy did a a really terrific job with that. Uh, Yeah, so... There we go. It it twists, and let let's talk about the twist and all of that in the uh, Alamoremis. But first, forgot about your vocab quiz. That's right. Doesn't matter. Let's just do the Alamoremis. That's good. <laughs> But first, Keith, before we hand out the Alamoremis or do the vocab quiz, uh, should we should we dive into yes. the uh, Star I Trek? I think we should. I, I'm excited to find out. All right. So in real time here, I will try to. Uh, um, eventually, we'll figure out how this will work. But I'm gonna need a segment bumper, Mike. That's really the important part. I think Whispers is a terrific show. Enthuses Ira Stephen Bear, and who is that again? That is the showrunner okay. or future showrunner. Yes. Um, I should mention that the book is written by Terry J. Uh, Erdman, who was implanted uh, to do some interviews into this into the uh, show and then just ended up doing an entire companion on every episode. Amazing. I think it's Whispers is a terrific show. There's something about the way it's shot and the point of view that made the episode that was really special. And obviously, uh, Colm is one of the strongest actors we have. 
Given that the script features him in every single scene, there's no small testimony to Meany's capability. The decision on how to play the replicant usurps the real O'Brien's position, however, was relatively simple, according to Colm. In order not to give away what was going on to the audience, we tried to keep him exactly the same, even though it was a different O'Brien, he recalls. I played it exactly the way I usually do. It was only the circumstances around him that were weird and gave you the feeling something else was going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, the original pitch to James Crocker involved O'Brien waking up. You talked about that. The, the Twilight Zone quality of the pitch appealed to Crocker and Pillar. However, uh, uh, as often happens, story details began changing rapidly. When we got to the break sessions, the staff decided they didn't like any of the amnesia business. So everybody in the room just brainstormed and came up with the idea of doing the Parallax, the parallax View a Warren Beatty-starred suspense thriller from the 70s, which was highlighted by strong accents of political paranoia as the central character attempts to unravel a dangerous mystery. Uh, in An earlier tale of paranoia, Invasion of the Body Centers, was also an influence, which we picked mm. up on all that. Uh, it's just, and this is kind of the way I feel about the episode right here. Um, I agree with Bear. In, in a way, it's Invasion of the Body Snatchers from the Body Snatchers' point of view. That's what ultimately makes the show tragic and interesting, that the body snatcher doesn't know it. It's unfortunate that this episode had to end so abruptly. I wish we had had a little more time there. Yeah. Up until the last 30 seconds, Keith, I thought it was a two-parter, because I just didn't think they could sum it up that fast. Um, Ironically, at one point in the development of the script, there was too much time left, and we talked all about that, too. And it turns out they were in a rush to shoot the episode, so as a way to expand the story, they came up with the flashback structure adding scenes in the runabout where O'Brien escapes the DS9, DS9 and goes to the wormhole. While such oh, tinkering can sometimes come off as padding, Coyle feels that these additions actually worked well on screen and added a nice pace to the show and also emphasized the mystery. Why is O'Brien running? That's yeah, actually I, interesting that that's how they padded it out was all those interstitial with, scenes. With the framing device, which that is interesting because I actually think the framing device is very strong and also very noir. Mm-hmm. Um, the episode marks the second appearance of actress Susan Bay as Admiral Rollman uh, and introduces the runabout Mekog, a replacement for the Ganges destroyed in the previous episode. Mekong, oh, yeah. yes. A Mekong, yep. excuse me. Um, an apparent, did, stop me if you, if you mentioned this earlier, I can't remember. An apparent continuity slip in the third act of the final script where the name Rio Grande is uh, inadvertently substituted for Mekong in referring to the pursuing runabout. It may have resulted in the loss of a touchstone back to the next generation. In that scene, O'Brien gives voice to a reprise of The Minstrel Boy, Last Heard. Yes, you did mention that. I did mention that, yep. Um, Science fiction buffs may have noted that the use of the word replicant, a term most familiar to fans of the uh, the film Blade Runner, to describe false O'Brien. The decision to use the word was motivated by uh, the desire to use something other than android, which tends to bring to mind data, or clone, which didn't have the appropriate connotation for the writers. With a nod towards Blade Runner, Coyle notes that he used the word precisely because the term hadn't been previously used in Trek. Obviously, this guy wasn't a clone or an android or robot. So that's what's left. I used the word and nobody objected. It's so funny that you think things are so thought through. And at the end of the day, sometimes it's just, well, I just wrote it and nobody said boo. So we kept it. I mean, but that's, you know, in art, that is such a big part of it. I mean, it's like I've, I've seen right in in rehearsals for a like a, a Broadway show, right? You're in previews. You have been developing this show for five years mm-hmm. to get it to this stage. And you realize, oh, we need to cut that song in order for time in act one. Like, hey, what if we just say it's blah, blah, blah. All right. 
boom, there it is. <laughs> and it's just like, okay, well, that you know, that thing that's been in development for five years just got radically changed by an well, offhanded it comment. It usually by an goes actor. the other way, right? Like as they mentioned here, you you put in some plot lines and then you cut some stuff and then you do for just because you cut some things, you forgot to cut the reference to it earlier. So there's these dangling strings that dangling don't make jazz. a lot of sense. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Hundred percent. Uh, yeah, well, that's all great info, Mike. Yeah. Good, good job tracking all of that down. Uh, that does not, however, protect you from your vocab quiz. Oh, we got to go back. Okay, let's go back. You to tried it. to bail. You didn't. You uh, but you know what? There's no escaping. Uh, let's hold on. I'll, I'll let's. All right, let's do it here. Okay, Mike, your first. This is this could be pretty easy. Mike, what is a personal log? Well, Keith, it's not a station log. Everybody has access to those. The personal logs is just you uh, thinking through your things, uh, and they come in handy if potentially uh, there's a giant conspiracy that you need to figure out in real time, out loud. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, apparently in the future, everyone is really, really into uh, audio diaries. Mm -hmm. It's sort of a, it's part of being a Starfleet officer. Uh, and next up, this was important uh, for this story. Uh, what's a docking clamp? Oh, uh, those are the things that hold ships in place when they come to visit the station, and uh, they're always getting screwed up when you need O'Brien to be busy. Yeah, yeah, there it is. Okay, let's talk wormholes in the plot. All right, but first, uh, Keith, personal mm -hmm. log today. Yep, boop, 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 boop. You know, we started talking about this earlier. My biggest wormhole is just the the handling of replicant o'brien and when did they know what uh because it seems like early on even in the first scene when they're establishing that something's off molly and keiko are not behaving they definitely know that's not him yeah. more so molly in fact in a in a, either a great bit of acting or really well executed direction whereas Keiko isn't great at hiding her revulsion or her, I guess, let's not say revulsion. Let's say her, uh, uh, whatever she's attempting. Aversion. To yeah, aversion. M Molly's not. Molly is like, this ain't my, I. So that's an interesting thing. That is very interesting, actually, because I haven't thought about it. They clearly did, wouldn't have told Molly, your dad, this is a monster daddy. So right. what does she, how does she intuit that Ooh. this isn't daddy? That's a good point. I mean, or did they tell her something? It's weird. Or, well, or if is they she... did, if they did tell her something, that sort of takes the piss a little bit out of your 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 reasoning that they were f figuring it out as they went along. Because, well, I uh, yeah, I don't, I, I I doubt they would have. I bet here's here's Keith trying to fix it. I think she's instinctually picking up on her mother's anxiety. Okay. Okay. <laughs> and her mother's aversion. That's, I'm keeping the Molly, Molly's initial reaction is a wormhole. Is uh, Molly a replicant? So, so, the, so that, um, because I, I, and I feel like even her responding to Ben is like, I, I can only, the way she, her anger in that scene appears to me of her being like, how can you put us in danger if this isn't yeah. him? Which is my question. Did they, if they thought he was dangerous enough to like lock him out of the security and do all this stuff, why would they have let him in his quarters sleeping? Like, 
Well, when did they right, get this so, info, and who gave it to them? It's clearly well, the rebels. Right? We're not getting this conversation, mm-hmm. and the conversation is somebody says exactly what you're saying, right? If he's a threat, let's just lock him up. Let's you know, and and if it turns out to be nothing, we'll apologize and move on. But like, let's detain him and investigate. And we're not getting the other half of that conversation, which is um, the same thing we see on um, on like Homeland, right? It's like we can take him in now, mm-hmm. but then we lose access to uh, you know he he might not talk. There might be other parts of the plot that other connections, other people that he's connected with that we're not going to see him. It's better that we just watch him. And if something goes wrong, we hop in, but we can watch him and try to try to figure out what's going on and what the plot is and whether he has any co-conspirators there, that sort of a thing. So like frequently, we will, instead of taking out the terrorist, we will track the terrorist. And there's risk associated with that always. But the information that they're trying to get is where you have Except the risk they're reward. they're not really tracking him either. I mean, clearly the guy opens the door right after he walks out of the scene. They don't see him sneak down and like and fig- and unlock all the logs and do all the O'Brien engineering stuff. So clearly they don't have eyes on him 247. They're letting him go about his business as if he were O'Brien. So they're giving him a, an awful bit of latitude for someone that they're well, agreed. suspicious of. Agreed, but you know, but I think that there's there's a raising level of suspicion throughout the throughout the episode. Now but you're right. I mean, that's definitely that's all to say. I think we're both going to agree, and I think the show run, the show writers agree. This is one episode specifically specifically where the wormholes are do not matter because this is the first episode we've had, and maybe one of the only where this is not we are not to be thinking of this from the viewpoint of. The everybody else. This is clearly about this O'Brien's experience. And yeah. and from the beginning, we are supposed to be suspicious of them. So, of, of course, their behavior will be suspicious, all these plot holes, because something's up, right? right? So all of our wormholes, we're just doing for the sake of we do them. <laughs> but For the sake of saking. None of them really ruin the plot in any way. In fact, they just kind of bolster it. You know what, it, you know what it's like? Because uh, as somebody who has been, although fired, I do want, I do want down below in the comments. Yeah. Like, I want your opinion on Molly. I want to know what that's all. What's yeah, up somebody, that? somebody fill the the Molly wormhole. Uh, what this reminds me of is being fired, right? And uh, which I'm I'm famous for, mm-hmm. right? And especially in in an environment where you've been there a long time and you. Uh, you hold the keys to a lot of the stuff. You like you, you you were important, and they're they're deciding to get rid of you is a process, and so people are having conversations, people are making decisions. They have to determine when is it that we lock you out of the system, right? We might have decided to fire you an hour, you know, like a week before, but we need to we need to make sure that you finish X project or train somebody else on this thing. And we think that if we tell you you're fired, you're not going to train the, the person on the thing. So we have to do this very carefully. And we mm-hmm. have to have these little conversations behind your back and not let you know what's going on. Meanwhile, you can tell something is off, um, but we're, we're not going to tell you what's happening yet. And mm-hmm. so we're suspicious of you. You're a threat. But we can't let you in on it yet. Right. We can't lock you out until we've figured out exactly what's going to happen. So uh, that, I, that that paranoid feeling—I've had that feeling, and I was right. 
<laughs> I would say that the other kind of like quote unquote wormhole, but also makes sense, is like I'd love to know, yes, the Manchurian trigger or whatnot, but also like how they implanted it, like and what was the I get what their plot was, but what is this technology? Is he a clone? Is he a what is it? It's really interesting and it begs so many big questions. Yeah. Uh because clearly it can be killed or destroyed because they do it. Um Well, I, I think it has to be some variant of a clone because he passed all of the tests the physical, that Bashir did. Right. All the physical tests. So like his DNA had to be the same, his biology had to be the same. Each of his you know, like it, he would find like, oh, if if O'Brien had broken his arm previously, or I think it's his shoulders fucked up, right? They would have to find evidence of damage on the shoulder on the scan. So they had to do a full body scan of the original O'Brien and rebuild him at the cellular level to do this. Well, <sighs> it's interesting. It's ballsy because, you know, you still have that kind of melancholy sadness and there's the kind of ethical and metaphysical questions, even if he's like an Android or something like that we get with yeah. data, like, is he, how much is he sentient person, blah, blah. If they destroy him at the end and he's an Android, but when you make him a, an actual clone, yeah, that blows up the sort of ethical quandary, right? Well, it, it makes the ending all the sadder. Yeah. And they seem kind of cold because they kind of sort of dismiss it. The, the rest of the crew sort of dismisses it. And they even add the little love bit with Keiko, which I love that ending. Um, yeah. And the other ballsy, and I know that it, from reading and from hearing your your trivial, I, we, I get that it's it wasn't particularly intentional, but it's it's not much like there are not many episodes of television except maybe the Twilight Zone and such, especially not in the '90s on network television that would just drop a freaking ethical dilemma like this at the last. 30 seconds of an episode and then just be like, see you next week. And then let, let you sit there. That's like at the end of a movie, if this was the movie, we'd be sitting yeah. in the movie theater for the next 20 minutes being like, what the fuck? Like talking about it. That's awesome. Yeah. That's baller. Um, I don't know that it was the intended, but that's where we got. Well, but, it, but it, I mean, I, I think you hear the intent and the score. So mm. go back yeah. to the very end and there's, uh, there's a good like 10 seconds of music after the last piece of dialogue, which for TV is a very long time to, to be left with the we're score there here, aren't we? Um, yeah. <laughs> what your best moment or whatever. Yeah. So it's, um, yeah. So I, I, I think it's no, I mean, it's heartbreaking. It really is because we, we as an audience, we're invested in O'Brien, but we become invested in O'Brien too here. Mm -hmm. Because we're with him on his whole emotional journey here. He he thinks he's O'Brien. He's trying to do the right thing. He's desperate to do the right thing. Well, and O'Brien Alpha says as much. He's like, if it were yeah. me, I would have been trying to figure out a way to figure out what was going on. Yeah. So, um, you know, and of course the ethical thing, if you're able to create a replicant this perfect, I mean, certainly you have to just have to, you know, ascribe it sentience and and as a living real thing. Um you know, this is this is really handy. Like, all right, so let's just go down the ethical wormhole, right? Let's say I got hit by a bus, but you can just replace me mm -hmm. with all your feelings. Well, not only that, but like, you know, biologically, he was Molly's dad. Yeah. He has all. The, he was functioning in the same thing. The only thing he yeah. lacked was the little bit of information about when the swap happened. Because clearly he, he just didn't know the he didn't know the swap had happened at all. 
Right. So therefore, like, you know. But he's clearly, his memories go back. It's not, see, it, it could have been effective to have him sort of have some, I don't remember prior to waking up, which I think they flirted with that idea. Yeah. Because he remembers the the death in the family. He remembers everything. Yeah. So I mean, it's, he's, it's, he is fully lived in. And, you and know, so. That's not even, so that's one ethical quandary, but that's not even scratching the surface of, holy shit, this species of people can make rep clones. Yeah. I mean, and, and we can clone, right? Mm-hmm. But the transferring all the knowledge. That's huge. That's, so that's, that's back-to-back crazy. episodes with gigantic doomsday weapons, like world eater weapons. Because yeah. this, is, this is bad news. Super, I mean, super dangerous. I mean, because you could, you know, Manchurian candidate the entire universe. Yeah, and then like it's it sucks because those two those two uh, rebels there at the in the last scene actually are humongous heroes, but yeah. they got like the one scene. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's it's fascinating. Um, I'll just say quickly for my best moment, uh, the stew scene. Do you know? Do mm. I eat it? Do I not eat it? Yeah, that was um, good. I thought the whole like it's it's great. It's interesting to hear that it was a plot device devised. After the fact, for time, the framing device. I, I agree. Yeah. I think the the noir stuff really worked for me. Yeah, and like him going yeah. through all the logs and the time passage, and I just thought, uh, just the shoot, just the direction and the shots. Is, uh, this was one of the best kind of like pieced together episodes I've seen. It was really great. Yeah, it has a very cohesive vision that is specific. You know, specific to this episode, stylistically specific and different and yet still deep space nine so like everything that is weird about it mm-hmm. is subconscious you don't really notice that we're really shooting this differently because it's, it's done very subtly uh all right mike it is time for you to throw some stem bolts at this also like stop just sending your guys out ben in these dangerous situations clearly like you gotta just just keep them on the station um I, uh, well, no, Brian's I, had a bad week, bad, yeah. a bad month. Um, eight point. I know people love my points. Eight point. I'm going to keep it even. 8.25. 80, 82.5, because we're on a hundred scale here. Hey, do the math. Uh, math it up. Yeah, I'm so mathy. Really liked it. I really liked this episode. I enjoyed it top to bottom. Yeah, I mean, I think I like this. It's funny to have them back to back with Armageddon game. Um, what did I give that? You gave that one a ninety point six five. Oh, really? Oh. Yeah. Yeah. See, this is the problem with not not being able to piece them together after the fact because it also this was definitely I feel like a better episode. Maybe I think so too. Yeah, I do think this episode's better. Well, fix, um, it, fix it for me in the score, Keith. I can't. Well, you you want me to swap them? Well, no, 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 no. no. You know I mean, what? I mean, an av- average wise, you can you, uh, you hold the power. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, uh, yeah, I, I think this one's very strong. I really like the the mystery of it all. The performance is great. Colmini is amazing. Um, yeah, I'm gonna give this a I'm gonna give it an 89. Okay. Uh, I, I I think I would have rated it a little higher. I I am a little bit um, swayed by your plot holes. Um, as 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 much as I may try to defend it, it is persuasive. Um, but a great episode, really mm-hmm. fun episode. It's one that I enjoy every time it comes up. Um, always happy to see it when it's next in my queue. 
Um, so, you know, just while we're there, yeah, to devil's advocate myself, mm-hmm. we talked about a lot. We talked about this a lot in when we did our other podcast. I think you generally speaking in a flashback, there is a little wiggle room for how reliable the narration is, right? Mm. Because we remember things different, especially if we're it's we're highly cons- under a high amount of stress and it's highly conspiratorial. So his remembering of that dinner with the way Molly reacted uh-huh. and Pico reacted could be influenced by his current state of anxiety. Oh, that's very interesting because because you're right. Everything in the flashback is told is his telling Correct. of the story. Uh, and his experience, maybe Molly didn't react that way. Mm-hmm. He just interpreted it that way because his emotions affect emotions affect memory. And probably at his core, now that we're just writing this, uh, <laughs> there is some recognition that he is other, that he is not what he thinks he is. I imagine that creates an like if you had some sort of subconscious acknowledgement mm. that you were not who you were, Keith, they would probably fuck with you pretty good yeah oh that's interesting very not explored but certainly interesting and certainly possible how reliable is the narrator and in this case how reliable is the narrator to himself right right like we how reliable narrators are we you know it's like i'm never i i i try not to lie to other people in the world. And I really try not to lie to myself, but Lord knows I do. Oh, God, we yeah. all lie to ourselves constantly and our, our anxieties and our wishes and our desires and our fears. They all, sometimes we hear what we want to hear. Sometimes we hear what we desperately don't want to hear. Mm-hmm. We remember that's, that is interesting. Well, that is uh that, and that now we're in a big existential wormhole, buddy. <laughs> I don't even know. We got to get out of here. Why are, we doing? Why are we doing this? Uh, I'm excited to talk to my therapist. Okay, well, there it is. So that I need is... some. If only there was something that could just snap me out of it. Yep. Boop, 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 boop. Oh, okay. I feel good. Oh, everything's great. <laughs> Folks, that was Deep Space Nine Season 2, Episode 14, Whispers. Next week, Paradise. So uh, we thank all of our patrons up on the screen there. You can join them at patreon.com slash K&M. To those of you who are listening to this in the audio-only podcast feed, uh, do us a huge favor. Leave a rating and review in whatever podcast service you are watching. Uh, that really helps other people find the show, and we very much appreciate it. Uh, it actually, you know, if I go back and and revisit what we've done, I do the audio-only feed. Okay. Because... Because I, I don't like looking at myself. Because uh, I'm an unreliable narrator. Mm, so but then there it would is. Just like render the all the time I did doing those screenshots, just completely pointless. Well, but are you are you doing them for me, Mike? Or are you doing them for the audience? Well, I'm saying you just told them they should probably listen instead of watch. No, we encourage you to join us on YouTube. <laughs> what is it? Hold on, it's YouTube.com/slash at Keith and Mike, right? I don't know. Sounds Dude. right. We went through that whole thing. Well, they're already here. Yeah, you're right. That's a good point. (laughs) All right, folks. We will see you back next week with Paradise. 
Uh, it is that, thank Keith. You. If you are All listening right. to the podcast feeds and found us and you would like to watch, look at our faces, we are very handsome. It is youtube.com slash at Keith and Mike, one word. Thank you. Take a look at us. And, <laughs> and then you go call, right back to the podcast. You call the shot. Uh, do we have a shot with Keiko or not? That is the question. Uh, leave the comment below. Keiko, no. Do you no. think we have a shot? Till then. <laughs> this has been Keith and Mike. Watch Deep Space Nine. Thank you for watching KM Entertainment. If you enjoyed our particular brand of nonsense, please like and subscribe. Or become one of our patrons at patreon.com slash KM.